You're listening to the Outclassed Podcast with Mike Redding and Blake Seifert, exploring excellence in teaching, tech, and leadership. Everyone, welcome back to the Outclass Podcast. It's great to be with you again this week and uh, good to be back in the seat. Missed last week. I was out at an awards ceremony and we'll tell you a little bit more about that uh, afterwards, but uh, also just recovering from a bit of a cold. So hopefully my throat isn't too scratchy for you and uh, we'll get into some good uh, discussion today. Blake, how are you doing? Good. Just enjoying listening to your scratchy throat, Mike. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's good to see you're on the mend, but um yeah, doing well. Good to have you back and uh, excited just to a bit of a debrief and a, and a bit of a therapy session today. Yeah, no, that sounds really good. Uh, yeah, I lost my voice. I actually got laryngitis. It's the first time I've had that in a long time where I wasn't able to speak for a, a few days. So. A speaker who can't speak. That's, yeah. Um, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. It's probably bliss for the family, but um, yeah, it's good. <laughs> we're, we're climbing back out of that one. So uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, definitely, uh, school holidays helps when you can sort of take a bit of a break. I think that's part of it, you know, uh, typical teacher thing. You just push and push and push until the end of term and then you finally get a, a break and then your body breaks down. So, mm. uh, it always happens. You always get sick in the holidays. I don't understand that. But, mm. uh, strange. Yeah. I think that's just, um, I don't know if it's a mental thing or, or what it is, but it's something that I've noticed if I don't let myself think that I'm going to have a bit of a downtime, um, then generally you'll sail through. But uh, this term was just like exceptionally busy. So I was really looking forward to a bit of downtime this week. And uh, yeah, it hit me like a ton of bricks. So uh, there you go. Well, it's Maybe good to be back and rested. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's good. And uh, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, the changes in seasons are coming. So we're just uh, looking outside at the moment. It's just a beautiful day. In fact, I was talking to someone in Sydney uh, this morning uh, over Skype and he's a surfer and uh, he actually commented to me today, like he can't wait for people to go back to work. This whole working from home thing is uh, ruined his Zen in the morning. He's one of these guys who's got a bit of a lifestyle business and works his work around his play. And uh, he's saying he had 29 guys in the water this morning on a wave that during midweek would probably only be a couple of people. So uh, it's interesting. More and more people are working from home on laptops and, I went up skiing with the kids yesterday and normally up the slopes, I'll take my computer up and do a little bit of work uh, and then uh, come in and, you know, go for a ski and then come back and answer some emails or jump on a few calls or something. And maybe, maybe you might have one, maybe two other people generally up the slopes with a laptop out. But yesterday I noticed they would easily would have been 50 people and they're all on business calls and you walk around behind them and see what they're doing. They're all on, on zoom and so on. And, I'm wondering how much of this work from home and uh, make, you know, make life work, work for you when you're actually allowed out. Not that you know what that's like at the moment. Um, no, I would feel sorry for you, <laughs> for, for you being on the wave with 26 other people. If I could, if I could get on a wave outside <laughs> yeah. of my five kilometer radius. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, it's a different, different perspective when you're, um, when you're thinking about, okay, working, work in you know, around your life. And I know it's something you talk a lot about, but, um, I, I also wonder about the flip side of that is like where you don't get to disconnect, where you sort of lose that ability to say, I'm going up the slopes and I don't have to think anymore. I can just be here snowboarding or skiing or whatever I want to be doing. Mm-hmm. That kind of changes a little. And that's something I've enjoyed, um, you know, with the holidays here at the moment. It's just that ability to 
be in my home without the sort of constant thought and, and messages and emails and the, the sort of drip feeding. I almost prefer to, you know, sit down and push through work for a whole day rather than drip feeding a few emails, you know, over three or four days. So yeah, for me, I, I think I definitely work better when it's, you know, on time and off time. Mm, I think that's very true. We've actually scheduled some time away next week. So uh, it's going to be one of those times where I just log out of teams and log out of hangouts and all the other different pings and dings that go on yeah. uh, and just make sure I'm unavailable and maybe just check in with the team an hour a day or something like that. But um, yeah, definitely that art of disconnect is, is something that's it's, uh, quite prevalent at the moment. I guess you've seen lots of different uh, shows come out about connectedness and uh, you know, kids on screens. And uh, I know there's that, uh, what was that? Netflix documentary that's going around at the moment, the social dilemma or something about the addictiveness. Mm, I actually but, um, watched that. Yep. Mm, yeah. I watched yeah. that uh, last week and yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's sort of mirrored a lot of what I've been saying. I actually did a, a speech to our 2200 kids at general assembly when we introduced our phone ban. I think, I think it was around that time. Um, just talking about a little bit of the why. So, you know, that they're, they're talking about what, what they're going to do in terms of, you know, we're going to have these pot new policies around phones, but, I sort of took the tact of, well, what, what are we trying to address by that? And, and it's really all, it's taking cues from, you know, what they're talking about here, which is this idea that, you know, there are, there are people trying to persuade you to do things consistently using big data, using the power of AI um, and trying to sort of slowly step you in one direction or another. And it isn't necessarily the direction we choose. Um, and, you know, my, my speech back then, two, two and a half years ago, whenever it was, was, was about let's take back that control, you know, and, and this idea that discipline equals freedom. Like you, you need to understand what's going on so that you can impose your own will on the situation to move past it. So I think, you know, the more understanding we have, the, the better opportunity we'll have to improve the situation. And I think it's the people who aren't at school now, it's the people who aren't young and um, agile in their thinking that are going to struggle the most. Uh, the ones who, you know, kind of fail to understand really what's going on and maybe don't have the, the wherewithal to actually understand what you know kind of technologies are behind these apps like facebook and instagram and how those apps are slowly moving us in particular directions um, and how they can be manipulated with bad actors i mean this this is all happening just because of advertising and other things but wait until you know u.s governments get their hook into hooks into it or, or foreign governments get their hooks into um, moving elections and changing people's mindsets and putting things in front of people that convince them of one particular way or another. And it sort of almost becomes philosophical in a sense of like, do we have free will? And I'm a big fan of uh, Sam Harris's and where he talks about, you know, the fact we don't really have free will because all of our um, views on things, every view that you have has been shaped by an experience and you didn't necessarily choose to have those experiences. So um, that to me is an interesting idea. And, and it's, it's sort of a great conversation with students, I think in the classroom is around, and even your teachers around the philosophy of this, like, what is it to have free will? What is it if we're getting ideas pushed on us that make sense to us because the algorithm can tell how to convert us and how to persuade us? Uh, do we actually have a, a thought of our own anymore? So super interesting stuff. I'm, I'm keen to see what the conversation that comes out of this is. I mean, everyone's saying, go watch it, go watch it. But like, okay, when all that dies down, what's going to be the, um, the sort of takeaway and the, the action items that, that schools want to take with this stuff? And I think, you know, if we look back, and I've said this to my principal, is are we going to look back and think, did we do enough? 
um, with the kids that were in our care. And I think that is a real moral obligation for schools to think about is, are we doing enough to prepare them for the world they're going into, this AI deep, learned, deep learning world? And are we doing enough with, you know, awareness of social media and, and education around social media? Um, you know, really deeply, not like, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there now about digital citizenship and being nice to people. Yes, we need all of that. But this is more about how you want to live your life how you want to spend your time, who's in control of your time, how are you motivated, uh, what kind of impact do you want to see on the world and how do you affect that impact in a, in a really ethical way? Um, because no one set out in these companies to be unethical. <laughs> mm. You know, that wasn't the first intention. The first intention was to help people and to make some money. And unfortunately, the, the way in which you make money is by mining people's information and getting them to spend more time and stealing their time from other things like interacting with your family and your friends. If you can take... 10 minutes of that, well, that's a win for your app. So it's not only stealing time from each other's apps, but stealing time from their actual lives, from their livelihoods and chance to connect. So it's, uh, it's a super interesting place we're in and I'm interested to see what happens. Yeah, so I haven't watched that yet. So is this all the stuff that's in this, like for those of us who haven't watched The Social Dilemma, what's the... Uh, yeah, the, they talk a lot about that. They talk about... Um, how AI, they sort of role play how AI um, interacts with a user. So they have this sort of uh, pretend computer, if you like, that's like three of the same person that's talking to itself to sort of describe the thoughts of things that the algorithm would be doing uh, when, you know, the, the kid hasn't logged in for a day and they're thinking, oh, okay, he hasn't clicked on a thing. We need to send him something that's going to get his attention. Like, um, you know, a girl that he likes has liked a photo of his. Boom, yeah, we'll send that up. Oh, we got him back now. They're now showing this ad. Now get him some sneakers ads. Now get him, this. you know, and it's really, when you put it in those terms, it really, you know, there's no one person orchestrating that, but I think when you put it in the, in the context of a person orchestrating it, it makes it seem far more vindictive. Mm. Um, so that, that's all the stuff. I mean, they, the, the, the problem is it's hard to articulate what, what we're actually, you know, it's not like, oh, here's the exact issue and we just solve that issue. It, it's a myriad of things that combine into a big, what they call an ex existential crisis. That, like they really believe um, that the fabric of society uh, is at stake in terms of the way we do elections, in terms of our views on things, in terms of our divisiveness, people not being able to have common ground anymore, all of those kind of social issues we, that we see, you know, in the 21st century. Yeah. And so the people who've made the documentary, I mean, sometimes you watch these documentaries and I sit there and I think, okay, so what's the agenda behind the agenda? Um, is it about just genuinely trying to educate people on the power of social media and what these companies are doing? Or is it a, is there a movement behind it somewhere? Like, did you get a sense of what the agenda may have been? Well, there's sure a social movement that. in terms of away from, I mean, a lot of these, these are the Silicon Valley execs <clears throat> that um, don't send their, you know, don't let their kids touch any technology and they, they feel guilty about their, their contributions in this area. And I think a, some of it is about guilt um, for these guys, but uh, you know, I think like anything, it's uh, it's try people do generally trying to do the right thing when they notice that there's there's something strange going on or something weird going on, and and they they feel as though it's it's super important. Um, whether whether it is going to be as as important as they're saying, or it's an existential crisis, you know, a world ending crisis, I'm not sure, but. Um, but I don't see that there's like much gain for them in terms of there might be some lobbying power, but the only 
lobbying there would be is regulation for social media, which I think is a positive thing. I mean, you think about it, like they mentioned this in the show, that there's regulation for what you can show during the cartoon section in the morning on TV in terms of the types of ads, the you know, types of commercials, how persuasive or what techniques they're allowed to use. Um, that's for a two-hour slot on TV. That's way less persuasive than you know, being spoon-fed, slowly drip-fed information to change your views on things or make you buy certain ways or get you addicted and hooked on something that you just keep coming back every day. Far less damaging in my view, but it's regulated. Yet social media has effectively zero regulation. Right. Yeah, okay. Interesting. I have to find some time to get out there and have a look at it. It's interesting too because a lot of those companies, Facebook, Google, um, are all pushing their way into or have tried to push their way into education as well. So there's definitely something around young minds and, uh, and influence and so on that they feel like I, maybe they feel like they can do a better job because um, they've been through a particular education system and it didn't serve them well. And so uh, they want to change it. But I'm just thinking about, you know, Facebook have tried to do some stuff in education. Uh, Google have tried, well, ex Googlers have tried uh, with alt schools and so on to, to try and change Make education. their own schools. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I even saw like you dropped an article in um, Jeff Bezos is starting off kindergartens now. Uh, so it's like, it's not just a social media platform in a sense, like they've got their tentacles into society uh, beyond what you're doing on your, on your mobile phone and on your screen, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there's two parts. It's obviously their technology, which if you look at like that, basically everyone's following the Microsoft model where Microsoft effectively gave away office and windows to schools for for a long period of time when basically when i was at school and uh that was okay schools looking at macs or they're looking at windows well the mac they have to pay full price for the windows machine was was their way in so um what that did is it just created this workforce of people that only knew (laughs) microsoft products so it was extremely effective kind of uh, campaign for them and it's pretty widely known as the model that everyone's following. This is the reason G Suite is free. Uh, when they say, well, if something's free, well, who's the product you are? Well, yes, you are. Your lifetime value is what's of value to Google. Is mm-hmm. that when you leave school, you buy an Android phone. When you leave school, you'll use Google search and click on ads while you're at school. Uh, and that mm-hmm. you'll also be data mined um, on the front end and the back end. So the the data mining your your search behavior, but then also mining your purchasing behavior and all the follow-up and everything else that happens. So um, you know, it's, it's pre-sale and post-sale for, for Google. So they've really got their, um, you know, hooks into the, the, the entire end of the online market. Mm. So yeah, there's, there's definitely that side, but then there's a side of sort of people trying to quote unquote, you know, disrupt education with new concepts of what schools should be. And I know this Jeff Bezos one's kind of interesting. I'm all, I, I'm always interested in this. I think, you know, we shouldn't reject new ideas. We should try them. Mm. The, the issue comes when, we're, we're trying with people's lives and, you know, like old school way. And we spoke about that um, a number of episodes ago briefly with Neil Selwyn where, you know, he sort of saw that as a, as a disaster that these kids have sort of been left with nowhere to go now. And I, I sort of agree with that, that that is a problem um, is that we are sort of, you know, <laughs> failing fast with children's lives. But at the same time, I think it's good that we are trying to press the status quo and the norms um, because that, is ultimately what brings about change in the mainstream. So um, it's a different different environment. They're doing these sort of Montessori-style schools, um, Bezos's little kindergartens that I think that goes up to ages of three and five at the moment. But I guess it has the plan to keep going up if it's successful. 
and it's a full day year round kind of deal and tuition will be free for its students. So I don't know if that can continue. I don't know how they're going to mine, you know, when you, when something's free, it's a little bit of a red flag sometimes, mm. um, but we'll see. Yeah. I think they're trying to serve the underprivileged, which is great. And it, um, it's part of mm. their philanthropic um, stuff, but that's, um, yeah, it's interesting. And I guess that whole, setting up with nowhere to go that was one of my thoughts too like all these people that are coming in and trying to work in early childhood which is great uh, but you, you teach them in a particular way and then you say right go back to a traditional school and try and learn that way and so a lot of those discussions we're having between primary schools which can innovate and change curriculum a lot easier than a high school can and so you've got these primary schools that are all feeding into high schools the high schools are pretty siloed and pretty traditional the primary school has some ability to innovate uh, and then students get confused as to how to learn. So um, it's an interesting thing. And we even had a, a question come in on Twitter, and this kind of relates to that in a sense, um, where Stephen Hesketh from over in Hong Kong was asking about how do you keep the momentum going? And, I mean, that even relates to this. You've got Jeff Bezos who's starting kindergartens and early childhood centres, and then then what? Um, yeah, it's a hot you, new thing now, but yeah. what happens in a year or two years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, like I get it. It seems to be the same old, same odd push. Like he's saying here that the the student is going to be the um, the customer, uh, and so the students, I guess, will or the children will get to be able to push their agenda in terms of that Montessori model, I guess, where they yeah. get to learn and explore. And um, I guess my crit- criticism of a lot of this is it sort of infers that the state system or the, the current mainstream system is broken, mm. um, and we hear that a lot. And I know you and I kind of is one place where we do agree is that. I don't think it's broken. Mm. Um, it's like it's producing really able-bodied people. I think it underserves some people. I certainly would have been one of those if I went to a very highly academic school like the one I'm at now. I don't think I would have done that well in that environment. I'm more of a hands-on person, and I think there is room for that in the curriculum. And but that's not broken. Um, broken means you know it doesn't work. The car doesn't start. It doesn't get you from point A to point B. And so whilst it's not ideal and we need to improve it, um, you know, we talk about student comes first. Well, find me a mainstream school that doesn't try to live that mantra, that isn't trying to have student voice and agency within the, um, you know, the the building of curriculum within the management and governance of the school. So, you know, most schools have a student representative on a school council. Most schools are, uh, you know, I know that's something big in Victoria at the moment. So, you know, whilst it seems like, oh, wow, putting a student as a customer, this new idea, I'm just not so sure it is a new idea. And you, you see that across, you know, we need to have global thinking and stuff, but actually that is embedded. Um, mm. Mainstream schools are doing that. So I think it's easy to say, well, this, this is the dated approach, the mainstream approach. And then we have the, the new school approach where we're doing these innovative, wild new things. But actually, if you, if you take a deeper look, you'll, you'll find um, those, those uh, you know, in, innovations happening in different ways, but certainly happening in the mainstream kind of education system. And I think that's why it's hard to argue it is broken mm. because it does, it does move and it does serve people differently. Like if you look at when I went to school versus what school looks like now, it is vehemently different. Mm. And I think this is my biggest problem. I think in education, we're so used to our red pen. It's either right or it's wrong. Uh, and you don't get to entertain the, why does it have to be either or why can't it be both? And so, um, you know, why can't you have traditional aspects of education with alongside some innovative pedagogy and, uh, and for what's working, leave it alone and where we can make improvements. Let's look at that without having to say that the whole system's broken or everything's not working. 
um, to take your car analogy, if the motor's not working, you don't go and rip the tires off and pull the boot out and, you know, rip all the electrics out. Do all that. You just focus on the engine and you you solve the problem and you you get it back on the road again. uh, It's interesting. I was in a conversation or a call with Microsoft today talking about um, indigenous uh, people and workers and what Microsoft are doing globally around that. They've got some great um, initiatives coming along in that space, but we're talking specifically about New Zealand and uh, with Maori uh, people in, in tech, in the industry of tech. Uh, so there's less than 2% of uh, Maori are involved in technology uh, sector of some sort, not just Microsoft, but just technology in general. And I don't know what the percentage would be in Australia with Aboriginals, but I'd assume it'd be roughly the same. Um, and so if you, if you trace that back, that's obviously got something to do with schooling. Um, but that's not to say the whole system's broken, but there's definitely a place for us to be able to look at Maori education and how we support these students through so that they feel like they can succeed. And they do have a place when they get to that tech sector that, um, you know, it's part of their worldview as well. So uh, I think like Microsoft are looking at that and uh, doing some, some great stuff around it. Um, so there's, there's questions being asked, but it doesn't, yeah, you're right. You don't need to overhaul the whole system. Uh, you just look at that part and say, okay, so how could we do that better? That's what I think. I think you know, we, we'd be throwing the baby out of the bathwater a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, you know, I think there are radical ideas that we still want to try. Um, I think there are holistically new ways of approaching education that maybe doesn't revolve around classes and strict curriculum and strict assessment and those things. So in that instance, you know, I can see the need for starting something new. Um, but I am a little worried when they sort of say, you know, it's a, it's a putting students first and it's a Montessori style school. It's like, well, you know, do we have to create this whole new thing or can we just uh, invest in the Montessori system or invest in the you know, state system and make that better or, um, you know, invest in buildings that are going to, or you know, some, some kind of capital investment that's going to be more directed at the thing you're, you're trying to improve. So, um, you know, with I'm always so skeptical of philanthropy, which is, you know, always focused around how they can, um, invest money in a place and, you know, make people's quality of life better, but also make a profit. So there's always that sort of negative side to it of, mm. well, what, what are they, uh, you know, what are they undermining in that process of trying to make a profit in terms of, um, you know, kind of shortchanging um, the subjects that the students who are going there. So that's always a worry, but who knows how this will turn out. It's, a, it's an interesting, interesting place. Mm. Let's, um, let's dig into uh, Stephen's question a little bit. I think it flows really nice with this and we can come back to some other stuff that was in the news a little bit later on, but uh, it just seems like this fits really well. So I mean, on Twitter, um, Stephen asked the question, like, how do you keep momentum after introducing EdTech Fun? Uh, so we thought we'd just answer that question and, and give you some ideas around that. Blake, did you want to go first or do you want me to kick off? Sure. I mean, I, I'm sort of right in the hot seat for this because unlike a lot of people in IT, um, I think the average lifespan of an IT professional is two years in an organization. So I'm definitely the outlier who's been, been in the same job for over 12 years. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm one who has seen things through. I'm one who started initiatives, stopped initiatives, failed at initiatives, succeeded at initiatives, but also, um, done the hard work of when the fun's over, when the excitement's over, what do we do now? 
And, you know, we're just talking about off air. The perfect example, I think, is this idea of, uh, you know, robots in the classroom and we all get Spheros and we put them in and everyone books them for the first few weeks and we develop a booking system and a policy and a pack-up system and some signage. And, you know, we do all this work and it's kind of fun and exciting and engaging and our heads are in it. You know, we're really in it. And then a month goes by and everyone uses it and loves it and then the holidays come and then everyone comes back and it's like, oh, I forgot all about those. (laughs) What happened to those Spheros? Uh, that was fun while it lasted. You know, you might use it in some really small way. Um, but, you know, how are we actually embedding this practice and keeping up the momentum? Um, and it's a great question, I think, Stephen, for asking it on Twitter because it's something that kind of is our challenge um, as, you know, facilitators of technology is once the technology is embedded, how do we keep it interesting? How do we drive it further? And I think it all comes back to looking at purpose. Um, we spoke about this on our, you know, transformation framework is if you don't have that strong purpose, why did you buy the Sphero robots? Mm. Um, how are you going to um, keep the momentum up with people? Why is it important for them to keep using it? Um, if no one has that shared understanding, that shared purpose in it, um, that's going to be challenging. So I definitely recommend you go listen back to that purpose episode um, around anything you're talking about. It might be introducing G Suite or Office 365 or um, spheros or whatever it is, the purpose obviously is going to be the driver longer term in terms of that motivator. Um, and the other thing is like, sometimes people want to flog the dead horse. So one of the things I've learned is, you know, there are winners and losers. There are things that are going to work and just take off and that sort of almost don't need much support. They just really integrate and embed themselves quickly. Um, and we saw that one of the best examples of that for us was Google sites years ago is, uh, we just had it on in our domain. And a few staff came to us and said, oh, can we use sites? I said, absolutely, you can go for it. Before I knew it, almost every staff member had a site or was trialing sites. And it was just a clear demand and need for that. And it was a right fit at the right time. So in that case, it was easy. You know, we really didn't have to do much to keep the momentum up, if you like. Um, It was seen as a necessary thing. But there are times where, you know, it's hard. People want the faster horse, but you're giving them the motor car. And they don't realize they need that yet. And so that's the time where you've got to get in the trenches and keep that keep pushing and sometimes it's hard to know is it not working because it's too complicated and it's just never going to work or is it not working because there's some initial you know we'd have to prime the pump a bit to actually get that momentum happening um and that's a hard hard line and we struggle with that every day and i think the biggest thing we do you'll probably talk about this a bit as well mike is um start measuring so what is it that we call success? Is it people using it? Is it people's confidence with it? Is it the feedback we get off it? Is it the reliability of it? What is the thing that we sort of see as this has been really successful? And you can break that down into smaller um, stages as well. So they're probably the way I, I would approach it in terms of looking at that momentum um, and keeping it up is, you know, get your value proposition there, your purpose there, get the shared understanding with your staff about why it's, why it's being embedded and what it's for, um, particularly if it's not something that they're driving, you know, if the staff are driving it, it's, it's obviously much easier. Um, but yeah, start with that value proposition and then, you know, look at measuring it and how you're going to um, keep on track. And, and if it's not working, um, abandon it. <laughs> mm you know, move to the next thing and, and revisit it later or just kill it all together. Mm. Yeah, I think, again, there's obviously some context behind Stephen's question. I know a little bit about his role in the school and uh, what he does, but um, I think it's something that a lot of people work are working through. Like, how do we, how do we embed this in? And I think you're right, that whole start with why concept, um, where you're trying to figure out what, like, what's the purpose? Why are we trying to do this? Why are we trying to 
push this if, if the the why is just to get some fun then that, that that's going to run out eventually uh and if that was the definition of success then you've achieved it and you probably need to move on so uh that would be yeah, that. It's sort of like trends trend something that's trendy versus mm. something that's actually the the new normal you know yeah. that's the new direction yeah and i mean i'm, I'm i guess I, I largely advocate a lot for that because sometimes like people who are interested in ed tech generally have a shiny object syndrome, you know, so uh, they jump from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And the next thing you know, you've got 47 apps that if you just found one app, you could probably do 95% of everything you needed to do with the one app, but then you add something and you add something, you add something, and then the teachers are overwhelmed and they check out. So um, I, I'm a real advocate for get the most out of the tools that you've got before you start looking for other tools that can do similar sort of things. Um, and that comes back to that purpose thing. Like, what are we trying to achieve here? And uh, is what's the best tool to, to do that? So uh, looking at that educational outcome and then saying, okay, so uh, obviously fun wants to be a part of it and introducing it, it's new, but how do we drive that through all the way to the end, I think is super important. And I think a big part of that is the whole concept of value. So people do what they value. So if they're valuing it, they'll keep doing it, whether it's fun or not. Um, so... Uh, for me, whenever we're looking at how do we keep momentum going, um, it's always trying to link that back to values so that, uh, you know, if I value saving time, there's no point me showing you all these features that make something look good when I could be showing you features that are going to save me time. So once I, I'm doing something that I value, and I'll, then I'll keep doing it, that momentum uh, will be able to go. And I think the other thing, you kind of touched on it a little bit, was just that, uh, getting feedback. I think the faster you can get feedback, the, the the more momentum you'll get. So if you're in charge of managing all the, the spheros in the school, if you see them getting booked out, make sure you go and have a chat to the, the teacher uh, who's booked them out and say, okay, how did it go? What worked well and what didn't go work well? And what are you going to do next? And and you keep, uh, just keep asking them questions like that. So uh, you get would them you thinking about Would you recommend next. that people, um, you know, do that kind of uh, qualitative stuff or, or the quantitative stuff? Where, where, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, in terms of data, I think like just a, a simple conversation is enough because quite often like a teacher might pull out the spheros to teach a little bit of coding or something, but they're not thinking about those authentic links back to curriculum necessary. So uh, if you're an e-learning teacher, I'd be looking at what tools are being used and what aren't being used and then finding those authentic links. So you could be talking to the teacher about, well, how are we teaching maths with Sphero and how are we teaching science concepts and how are we teaching art with it and um, and so on. And then you'll start to see those Spheros just get used more and more and more in different contexts uh, across the school. So if the, um, like if the definition of success is usage and adoption, then those are the sorts of conversations that can push that. Um, so, yeah, I guess it depends in how you define success and what your momentum that you're trying to, trying to maintain. But uh, I know a lot of teachers who are in that role, kind of similar to Stephen, where your uh, your role is the ed tech leadership kind of a role and supporting teachers to use technology effectively and meaningfully. I think it, a lot of it comes back to that meaningful integration. So let's, just, let's not do micro bits for the sake of it because we saw a cool thing on Twitter. Let's actually think about curriculum and, and think about learning outcomes and then tie that technology into it and then be thinking, okay, and what next? What else is there? Hmm. It's sort of the, the, the tail wagging the dog, which um, you will hear a lot, but sometimes that can be a good thing is to inject something new. But I think you've got to be careful if you can do it the way, you know, in a, in a 
if you can do it in an integrated way that is already available to you, but maybe not as shiny, <laughs> often that will have a better, a better lasting result. Um, but it's interesting what you said, it's a bit of an aside, but um, which just got me thinking about one of the issues. And this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately and how we unpick this problem of, um, you know, myself coming from the technical background, uh, it's sort of underscored an issue that exists in a lot of schools where the technical team aren't necessarily tied to the value proposition. So they're saying, well, oh, this looks cool. Staff member said we should get it. So then they go and get it, facilitate it and put it in. And then they, they complain when it doesn't get used because, because they're not actually involved in, um, you know, providing the value if you like. And I think that's where what you were saying is going and actually having a conversation with the teacher about, Oh, you got these micro bits, but actually you're only using like one hundredth of what it can do. Mm. Um, as a technical person, we might have that information and we might be able to help the teacher reach more of the potential of the technology mm. as well. So I think there's that part of it too. But it, yeah, it's something I've been thinking about a lot is how do we more incentivize and more motivate IT professionals to be on in the same direction and on board with the school's vision and kind of sell you know, that nice feedback loop of like, when I put a technology in, I feel the direct um, effect of it. I don't know if I'm being clear here, but it's just something that I'm, that I'm trying to work through. <clears throat> yeah, you want to make sure that what you're doing is tied to the school vision so that you come to work every day going, what the work I do matters, that moves the needle, right? So yeah, like the but, but for them to be like right in the middle of that rather than like, mm -hmm. oh, you're just the guy who facilitates it. You're just the guy who, you know, gets them ready and has them bookable and, and has them attached to the Wi-Fi. It's like that doesn't work. There's, that can only take you so far. Ultimately, you have to have your IT team embedded in the, in the culture of learning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked about in the past, it's not like the IT team should be seen and not heard or hidden away in a back room somewhere in a, behind a closet and no one even knows where the IT room is, um, let alone who the IT person is. Um, mm. So how do you get that out? And I think it goes beyond... The IT person, like, I mean, you're obviously employed by a school full time, but a lot of schools don't have that. But they've got IT professionals in their community who would be able to provide that kind of expertise and support as well. And that comes a lot back to that when we were talking around the, the education transformation framework. And one of those elements was community. And how do you, how do you engage community well uh, when you start telling the story about the vision? Here's what we're trying to achieve. Uh, quite often we've seen IT professionals come out of the woodwork and run coding clubs and uh, and all sorts of things for free. So you start pulling in this network that goes beyond you. So it's not always on your shoulder to keep the momentum going. The parents are coming in and uh, they're helping out or com interested community people and, you know, retired professionals and all sorts of people come out of the woodworks to be able to help. And it's always ironic to me that at schools, they always say, oh, our biggest, you know, one of our big challenges is trying to link the learning to industry and give kids industry experience. It's like there's, there's almost always an IT team and infrastructure sitting at the school that could be leveraged for that. And, and you know, in our school, we, we've started doing server room tours for the, um, for the IT kids and uh, helping out with some coding stuff with them and, and, you know, not just facilitating the technology, but actually showing them, hey, this is what a small to medium enterprise looks like. <laughs> this is all the pieces of the puzzle that have to fit together, um, which is great because it's direct industry experience in a growth sector. So I think it's really good if you look at the, the sectors that are growing. I did some research on this recently for our school and, you know, technology and te technician work and all that sort of stuff is a growth area. And ironically, a lot of schools are saying, um, you know, we want to give kids experience in agriculture and farming and stuff. And that's great um, because it's a new 
there's new technology that can be used in those sectors. But if you look at the sector growth, it's actually shrinking and projected to shrink by 10 to 15% over the next 10 years. So yeah. I think you've got to you know, look where it's smart, but inside your schools, there's tremendous um, opportunities to leverage your IT teams for, for that kind of link, linking to real world outcomes. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't realize that set was there, but um, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that's, that's part of it. So yeah, I mean, that's one of the things we look at a lot is just how do you do more with less? How do you keep things going? How do you build long-term um, and look beyond the, the year-to-year run? So um, great question. Um, be interested if anybody else has got some advice, they could throw us a, uh, an answer on Twitter or Facebook or somewhere and use the, the hashtag outclass podcast. Don't just use the word outclass. We've seen a couple of people do that and we don't pick it up because outclass is a uh, as a hashtag is used quite a bit in a range of different circumstances. Mm. So uh, yeah, let us know. Um, you can also uh, just hit us up on a contact us page on using technology um, Send us your message and we'll uh, love to answer your questions. So we'll keep the conversation going. Uh, Blake, I saw you had another um, article that you just dropped in there about the pixel. Yeah, that's, that's actually my win this week is oh. um, uh, new pixel devices are out and I just like what they're doing at the moment. Um, and they're kind of slotting themselves into a certain uh, market segment now with um, Google. For those who don't know, the Pixel is their, their sort of iPhone competitor. Um, and it's not sold that well traditionally. They've tried to be a flagship phone that's in Australia, you know, $1,700, $1,800 sometimes. Um, and to compete with the iPhone um, and the sort of the market share that the iPhone has and the, the mind share that the iPhone has, I suppose, more of than market share. Um, and they've not done very well. And I think what they've done now is just such a great move and they're, they're pricing their um, phones a lot cheaper. I think they're 400 US and 500 US for the four Pixel 4, and uh, sorry, the 4A and the 5. Um, and so they're just a simpler phone. They're not cutting edge, but they've got everything you need. They've got a fantastic camera. They're ticking all the right boxes. Um, and I think that's just a smart move for them. Just bring the price down take the expectation down a notch and you'll find there's a much bigger market there uh, to sell to. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the pixel. I use it every day. Um, it's been by far, pro- well, maybe not by far, but it's definitely been the best phone that I've owned next to the iPhone 4S. I had that thing for like two and a half years, which back then was a long time. <laughs> um, so yeah, just really happy with, um, with the decisions they're making. And also they've launched this new Google TV uh, Chromecast, so it's a it's a Chromecast that has Google TV built in with a remote control. So you can you actually have an interface. You can click around and open YouTube and play videos and Netflix and stuff. And it's interesting the direction they've gone here is they've actually made that that experience an app on your phone as well. And it's the same experience. So I can now watch things inside the app or watch them on the the TV, and I can add to a watch list if I'm out, and then it'll appear on my TV. And they're kind of trying to bring that ecosystem more sort of fluent across devices so you're on your pc you're on your phone you're on the uh, tv screen it almost reminds me of microsoft's um you know strategy of any screens a screen you just turn up to a screen and it's got everything you need so um i think that's a step in the right direction um as a school that uses chromecast in every classroom i'm interested to see what that what that means for us in the classroom as well yeah okay that's interesting because i i saw they pulled um the play store play movies out um, from Google and they're just pushing everything back through YouTube now. Um, so there's YouTube music and YouTube videos and things like that. So, yeah. And uh, YouTube music's great. I, I've got rid of Spotify recently 
in favor of YouTube music. And I, I just love it. The, the recommendation algorithm for me is just so much stronger than Spotify's. Uh, I can just put my mix on every day. I get a new mix and it 99% of the time knocks it out of the park. So okay. <laughs> really happy. Obviously their, their AI stuff is, you know, can be used for good <laughs> and bad. <laughs> But uh, it's uh, knocking it out of the park for me. I'm really, really enjoying YouTube music. Yeah. I'm just looking at the article. We'll link it out in the show notes. Uh, you've linked out to The Verge. And there's a big uh, tweet in there by Google Push and Google Duo again. What the heck's going on, people? Yeah, Duo is hanging around apparently, which is its, uh, that's their video calling um, experience. But uh, there, is, there is murmurs of it merging with meat. So Duo will become meat. I don't know. I think they really want to keep meat as a enterprise thing where you can screen share and you can add add-ons in and you can take attendance and do all those kind of enterprise features and education features. Duo is just more of a, I've got my phone. I just need to make a video call and it's baked into the dialer. I think that's how they're, they're doing. I don't know. I mm. can't speak for Google, but that's sort of what I see. Yeah. I'd like to speak for the people and say when the horse is dead, dismount. Um, <laughs> if you're a duo lover, let us know, but I'm yet to find one. Yeah, I don't know anyone who uses it, to be honest. I accidentally used it the other day and, and the other person didn't have it. So yeah, this didn't is work point, out. Right? Why, why have two apps that can do exactly the same thing? Like, just Yeah, well, I, I, I can understand why. I don't know that they're necessarily um, executing very well, but I think the why is that one of them has, is heavy loaded with enterprise features and you don't want all that crap when you just want to FaceTime someone. You know, like if FaceTime had all that stuff in it on the phone, um, I'm not sure it would be as attractive to, you know, the grandma that wants to call their grandson. So, um, yeah, I can see what they're doing there because they're trying to build in the dialer. Literally when, when I'm on an Android phone call, I have a button that says uh, video and that opens Duo. So if they can manage to get that on, you know, hundred million phones, then that's great. But until then, <laughs> I don't know if it's going to take off. Mm, you're still going to have to call me old school, my friend. Um, I'm not putting the app on my phone. <laughs> no, that's it. But I, but I think what they're doing is they're, they're rolling it into Android. So it'll be like, it's on the pixel phones by default. So I think they want to have that as their, you know, easy go to FaceTime competitor. Awesome. That'd be good for about the seven people who are using pixel. <laughs> we can actually that's good it. the pixel's getting cheaper there's a bigger market there now so we'll, we'll see what happens yeah no I, I used to have a pixel i liked it you can't get them in new zealand they it's too small a country for google to care about so yeah um, that's the problem as well there's no there's no like channel partners for it really hmm. yeah and then you, i mean we could go through australia or something but then you don't get warranty and service and there's service, no cover yeah. and all of that sort of stuff it's hard enough to get it replaced you know, in a, like unless you're using an Apple product, getting any technology replaced is hard enough. When it is in warranty in the country you bought it, let alone grey imports, it's impossible. Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, we'll see where that ends up uh, getting to. What we're doing wins our win for this week was uh, we missed last week because uh, I alluded to it at the beginning of the session. Uh, that was away last week because we had an award ceremony to attend. So. Uh, using Technology Better was awarded as the New Zealand uh, Partner of the Year for Microsoft uh, for scale and impact. So uh, for our training services that we've done. So um, yeah, we're pretty stoked with that and really proud of the team and the amount of people that they've served, especially during COVID. It's just like skyrocketed, as you can imagine, uh, the numbers of people that have needed training. And um, yeah, we've been really digging the 
the whole um, Microsoft is not the Microsoft of the 1990s. There's some great features out there and teachers are really starting to, to relook at it. So um, it's been, yeah, it's been a fun few months and uh, a good, good run. Yeah. They, uh, they're definitely changing with the times. Um, I don't think anyone was a big fan of Steve, Steve Ballmer's reign. Were they? I don't think he did a lot good. In fact, if you look at all these decisions he made, I think like, you know, nine out of 10 of them ended up failing or causing harm to the company. So mm. Satya has got a big job ahead of him and I think he's so far doing a good job. Mm. Yeah, he's definitely um, turned it around. And we talk a lot about culture. It's just something that we see all the time talking to Microsoft employees. That's the culture is just so radically different to how it was even just two or three years ago, even. Um, yeah, like what, what are they, what are they doing? Well, just like you hear, uh, like one of the things that I notice a lot is there's a massive, um, I guess there's a, not a freedom, but there's a, there's a big push around uh, professional development and they value their people and, um, which is something that uh, I've really noticed. And then there's a massive, uh, been a massive change around inclusion and accessibility. Uh, there's a big, been a big push around that. You see that come through in all of their products. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just being, seems like the culture has shifted a lot from, I don't know if it was just, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just that the more we work with them, the more we seeing more, but it seemed to me almost like a big conglomerate of a company you know, men in their ivy towers who you could never get close to. It seems to be very flat now. You can almost access anyone you need to. Um, And I think there's a real position. uh, Microsoft's taken a real position around listening, um, which, you know, sometimes the bigger you get, the more successful you are, the less you listen to your customers. Um, But it seems like they've flipped that on their head. Um, So it's been, yeah, it's it's been uh, interesting just to watch that that um, change coming underneath his leadership seems like people are enjoying their jobs. They feel like they're on task on point. Uh, we probably met yeah, this in other podcasts, but they, um, every meeting we have, it doesn't matter which department in which country, they're all saying exactly the same thing. Like everyone's aligned to the vision, to where things are going. Um, which is, which is really interesting. So we obviously talk with a lot of different companies. Sometimes the guy sitting next to you, the guy next door to him, he doesn't even know what, you know, what the, they'll get two different answers from. So, um, yeah, pretty impressed with just from a business point of view. Like I know what it takes to just build culture in a small team to be able to do that on a large team. Pretty impressive. For an enterprise, it's, it's very, very difficult. So mm. yeah, if, they're, if they're managing to get everyone on the same, on the same bus in the same direction, it's impressive. Mm. Um, but I know they've, you know, they've done a lot in, yeah, in their sort of market research stuff, they're sort of no longer looking at the short term. I, I know we had a guy out from the US to look at our Chromebook setup and it ended up hard selling us, um, which was fun. <laughs> One of the execs from the US, rather than sort of like, like it was the short term win. He was like, well, we could just convert this, you know, leading school in Victoria, you know, let's just go for the sell rather than looking at the long term or how do I actually serve their needs better? What is it about Chrome that, that worked for them that we can try and replicate, not just say blanketly that it works, even though we have windows laptops in the school and we use them and we know, we know how they work. Um, You know, we're very happy with our decisions still, but, um, but to sort of play that longer term game and start making some institutional change, instead of just selling what you got, uh, at the time in that short, short term thinking. So, you know, I, I definitely see that uh, in the last, you know, 12 months, especially. Yeah. Yeah. It's been interesting. There's, especially this year, just watching some of those larger partners, Google, Apple, Microsoft, how they've engaged with the, the market, uh, how they've come to support other teachers and um, schools and so on. It's been, it's 
been really mm. good to watch actually to be honest um you see google just rolling out you know meet features and yeah. you know like they've got you know 49 participants in the room now as standard and they put they've just got attendance for edu accounts uh they're rolling out as well so mm. um just to see them like sort of react to that and say all right putting all this stuff off and we're just going to push these features that we know people are, are relying on and we've seen the numbers that they're using mm. um, that's somewhere where google are really strong is looking at that that quantitative data and making really good decisions based off it yeah yeah right across the board we just see massive adoption hey um mm. which is interesting because if you're working in any of these companies generally you're given a goal of usage um and so everyone's seen these monstrous spikes in usage and then all the managers are like right 2021 how can you improve on that so um yeah i think there's a few Product managers are probably praying that um, COVID continues on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. And, and but also, you know, while you're there, you've got to you've got to keep people interested and, and keep the product, you know, worthy of your attention. Once COVID does, you know, return back to a pseudo normal, mm. um, so that that's the the challenge for everyone, isn't it? Is that what happens after? Do we just go back? And and like I've said on here before, one of my concerns is I, I was shocked when the first lockdown finished how quickly everyone just went straight back to the traditional methods. Mm. Um, like, I, you know, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I just thought that given that, that people had used these platforms and were more happy to do things remotely now and collaborate on docs, you would just have seen that as kind of a muscle memory reaction um, given we had, you know, 10 weeks or whatever it was of using it. But the muscle memory was the photocopier and yeah. the worksheet and the, you know, the booklet and the um, having meetings again in, in small groups and, you know, trying to social distance with larger meetings. And, you know, it was like, well, do, do we actually need to do that? You know, I mean, I know uh, from the, from the leadership, they were fantastic. We're still doing uh, remote um, staff meetings and all that sort of stuff. And we're also, um, we're talking about, well, uh, remote parent teacher interviews went so well and actually worked for the parents, you know, not losing all that time coming to the school and waiting between interviews and trying to book people at the right times, just jumping on for five minutes. It's done. Um, as a parent, that to me just seems so much better. Mm. Um, so yeah, there are, I think there are going to be some good takeaways um, at an institutional level, but it's, it's sort of more at that basic teaching level where I'm worried that it'll just slip back uh, into what, what's comfortable. Yeah. Probably brings us full circle to how do you keep that momentum going? Hey, so once it's all over um, that first initial push, what do you do to, to keep that running? So um, yeah, been a, been a great conversation, Blake. Anything else that you want to um, chat about before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. Um, there was a bit of a fail about the, uh, the US debate. I don't know if you've seen any of that, but uh, that'd, that'd be my fail. These debates, um, it really is just a sad, sad, scary time for, <laughs> for the free world. But, um, you know, we don't need to dwell on that. But uh, I just thought I'd mention it. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but saw a couple of news headlines flash past. It seemed like it was an interesting time. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do they call it? Uh, grumpy grandpas or something. <laughs> right. Classic. Excellent. All right. Well, um, thanks again for listening, guys. We've uh, appreciated being in your earbuds and uh, we look forward to catching up with you next week. This has been episode what, Blake? We must be episode 24. Yep. Almost up to a quarter century. Um, so again, if you want to take uh, a say and help us set the direction of this podcast, feel free to fire a question at us or uh, a suggestion around what you'd like us to dig into. 
Uh, you may even know someone who would be great to have on the uh, interview and uh, give us their expert opinion. So we're open to those. Uh, look forward to hearing from you, but we'll uh, chat to you next week. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening. For more episodes and show notes, visit utb.fyi forward slash outclassed. <laughs>